When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Good morning, church. So last week, we went to the beginning. We started in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be here in Genesis for uh, several months. And here at the very beginning of Genesis, we are in a section of Scripture that has caused all kinds of division and derision. It's been the source of these things both inside and outside of the church Uh, for quite some time. And as I pointed out last week, one of the reasons why this happens is simply because we do not take the Genesis account at face value. And what I mean by face value is that we do not read and approach this section of Scripture from the perspective of its author, Moses. We, We bring our cultural baggage and we read the Genesis account through the lens of our cultural baggage rather than reading the account and letting it inform our cultural baggage. Uh, this is the issue that we have at play here. Um, and so as a result, there's all kinds of arguments and division uh, simply because we don't take the passage and read it according to its original context, the intention of the author, and allow the rest of Scripture to illuminate the portions that we may not understand. What's at stake here is more than who is right and who is wrong scientifically and historically. 
uh, several years ago, uh, Chuck Colson, the late Chuck Colson, wrote a book. Uh, if you don't know who Chuck Colson was, he was a, a very influential voice in evangelical Christianity during the 80s, 90s, and until his death uh, just a few years ago. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, the last book that he published, as in 2012, was entitled, The Sky Is Not Falling. Something that all of us need to hear this morning after the week that we've just had, right? The sky is not falling. But the more popular book that he wrote in the last decades of his life was a book entitled, How Shall We Now Live? Playing off of the book from Francis Schaeffer that he wrote called, How Shall We Live? And in that book, he says something that I think we should consider that, that evangelical Christians, people like our church, we must begin to think Christianly. We must begin to think from a Christian worldview, especially when we come to sections of Scripture like this one that we have before us. About Genesis 1 to 11, the primeval history that we're talking about, and the Genesis 1 account, he says we need to communicate that what is at issue is not the specifics of evolution versus the specifics of Genesis. Rather, at issue is the worldview claim that life is the product of impersonal forces versus the claim that life was designed by an intelligent agent. And this is the part that really stands out. <clears throat> we must fight worldview with worldview. When we come to Genesis chapter one and two and three from a, a scientific perspective or a historical perspective, we make a huge mistake. Moses's purpose is not physical, it is metaphysical. His purpose is not scientific or historical or anthropological, it's theological. As we, as we saw in last week's takeaway truth, right? He's impressing a grand truth upon a, the Israelites who were characterized by anxiety. They were scared about the task that laid before them. They were spiritually immature. They were theologically very confused. And so Moses is trying and establishing within them this fundamental truth in Genesis chapter 1 that really sets the stage and, and is throughout the scriptures and various different books and pages, that the universe is God's creation. Everything in it belongs to Him. All of the world belongs to Jehovah. It's not the pagan gods that they're going to run into in Canaan or that they left in Egypt. Those are simply human constructs. But instead, everything was created by God. And the point of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is not the when and the how of the scientist or the historian. The point of Genesis 1 and 2 is the why and the who that is behind the cosmos. And you can understand, when you take the text at face value, it's understandable why Moses would be trying to communicate this to the nation of Israel. They're embarking on the conquest of Canaan. They're going to resettle the land that Dan talked about with Isaac in the children's sermon. And they're facing very strong nations and very strong cities, and they're being given the task of bringing order out of the chaos of this very pagan land. And they need to be reminded that who they're serving and who is abiding with them is the God who brought order out of the ultimate chaos. And he's the one who brings order out of the chaos of our lives as he's been doing for them and he'll do the same as they settle into the promised land. So this morning, 
We're going to pull at times from chapter 1 in places as we look at the creation of humanity from the perspective of chapter 2, which gives us a lot more detail. Chapter 2 kind of drills in and on the creation of humanity. But at times, we're going to just kind of touch base with chapter 1 to have a cohesive narrative here this morning. So let's start with this first aspect in this chapter, the context of creation and the garden in verses 7 and then at the end of the chapter. Let's remember, when it comes to creation, the world was without form and void. It was formless and it was empty. And so in the first three days of creation, God addresses the formlessness of creation by creating spheres to bring form and order to creation. And in the second three days of creation, God fills the emptiness by putting different creatures, the, the, the birds in the sky and fish in the sea. And on the sixth day, he reaches the pinnacle of his creation. It says in verse 7, the Lord God formed the man. This is the Hebrew word Adam. He formed a man out of the dust from the ground, the Adama, the Hebrew word. So Adam, Adam was created out of the Adama, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature or a living soul. And in verse 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he took a rib, and you know the story probably. <clears throat> he took a rib from the man, and he forms the woman, flesh of flesh. We now have male and female. So God, while God spoke the world, the stars, the moons, and everything else in the cosmos, he spoke into creation. You see with humanity's creation that he changed his approach. He gets his hands dirty. He comes down out of the the elements of the dirt and he forms Adam out of the ground and he breathes into him, making him a living soul, which is what distinguishes us from our pets and our animals that we love. As lovable as they are, they're not human. They don't have a living soul. He created us in his image and this creative act involved the entirety of the triune God, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We read in Genesis 1, God said, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image, after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? By being created in God's image, this means that God invests in humanity certain divine attributes. So, for example, some of these attributes that God has, he can't give to us. These are called incommunicable attributes. As much as I would like to think it, I am not all-knowing like God is, right? I'm I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnipotent. None of us are. We're not omnipresent. We are not eternal. We're not immortal. There are certain attributes of God that are incommunicable, that he cannot invest within humanity. But there are some attributes of God that are communicable attributes. So, for example, we love because God is? Come on, wake up. We love because God is? That's better, right? Uh, We're concerned with mercy 
and taking care of those who are, are oppressed or who are vulnerable. Why? Because this is the merciful heart of God. This is an attribute that he has invested in us as part of his image. So we can love, we can enjoy, we can have joy, mercy, grace, justice. All of these qualities come out because we have been created in the image of God. If, if you really want to think about the image of God, let me give you three words. They all start with the letter R, okay? The first one is this. To be created in the image of God means that we are designed to reflect, reflect God's glory, right? We are, we are designed to show the world who God is, these characteristics, these attributes. Secondly, a second word, we are designed to represent God's kingdom, you know, in the ancient world, I've shared this with you, I think, in the past, where, you know, say an emperor, a king, a Caesar would conquer a new nation, and they would become his vassals, right? And one of the things that was done almost right off the bat was statues were built around that territory that had been conquered with the image of the emperor or the Caesar or the king. On the money, they would distribute coins, and on that money would be the image of that new ruler. Why? Because the image of the ruler spread throughout the land, marked it off as, this is my kingdom. And so when God says to be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth, what he's doing there is he is extending, putting his image across the entire planet saying, it's all mine. My image is everywhere. This is my kingdom. The cosmos is my kingdom. And so we represent God's kingdom. Another final word that starts with R is relationship. Being created in the image of God, we, re, we reflect God's glory, we represent God's kingdom, and we live in relationship with other people in order to have a full and meaningful life. God, our triune God, is one God in three persons, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us create man in our image. And that holy triune God has been in perfect harmony and peace and love for all of eternity before time ever began, always has been. So we are hardwired, people, not to be alone, not to do life on our own. We are hardwired to be in deep community with other people. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. But now why is it significant that we are created in the image of God? If you don't get anything else out of the message this morning, I hope you walk away with this basic truth that being created in the image of God gives us inherent dignity. Our dignity comes about as human beings, our significance as to who we are, simply because we have been created in the image of God. The psalmist says, what are mere mortals? that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them, yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. In the ancient world, ancient Near East, humans did not have inherent dignity. All of the other creation stories that are out there, and those of you who attended universities where you were taught that, well, the Genesis account is just nothing more than an ancient version of a creation epic, like the epic of Gilgamesh and Enuma Elish and all these other things, and so you can't really believe it's divine. What they're missing is the significant differences between the Genesis account and all the other creation myths that are out there. See, in all the other creation myths, humanity has no dignity. Humanity is created to be the slaves of the gods. 
pure and simple. We're nothing more than a plaything for the gods to do their work and to do their bidding. The scriptures give us a very different picture. The significance of being created in the image of God is very practical, very meaningful. And in 2018, Tim Keller went to London and he gave the keynote speech at the, uh, parliament, the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast there in London. And, and in his speech, he quoted a passage from a sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. gave in the mid-1960s entitled The American Dream. And, and this is what Dr. King said. You see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, or what we would say, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from a treble white to a base black, is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day, we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is, this is what's behind the command in James to guard our tongue. Why are we to make sure that our tongue is never used to tear down another human being? Why are we not to scorn them, curse them, degrade them, and denigrate them? James says, because we're all created in the image of God. Practically speaking, the image of God Us being created in the image of God is the reason why racism and all the other isms that divide and create strife and which are so disgusting in the nostrils of God are wrong. At the same time, it helps us to understand that our dignity doesn't come from our government. Our our, our dignity comes because we were created by God. It's linked to our creation, not because our government has decreed that we have the the privilege of having certain rights and freedoms as Americans. We have our inalienable rights. Our founders understood this. We have inalienable rights because we are created in the image of God, and the role of government is to ensure that we enjoy these rights. The government doesn't give us our rights. But what happens in a society when you no longer believe this, that you're created in the image of God? Well, what happens is what we saw in January of last year when the New York legislature stands up and begins cheering over the passage of their new abortion law, which makes it legal right up to birth to abort a baby simply for the ambiguous reason of the mother's mental health. And they think nothing about it. You see, when we get disconnected as a society, as our society becomes more secular, this is going to be a flashpoint of conflict between Christians and those who are not Christians. Because we understand our integrity, our, our value. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm having some problems this morning. <clears throat> Thank you. 
We understand that our dignity is linked directly to being created in the image of God. This is an absolute standard as Christians. In our secular world, what's the basis for our freedoms and our rights? Why should, when you don't believe that you're anything more than a cosmic accident, a group of molecules that somehow came together by accident with no good divine oversight or purpose or meaning, what does it matter? What, why should I treat you good? Why should I be kind to you? Why should I care about the unborn? Why should I care about the elderly? Why shouldn't I just compare, care about myself? This is the conundrum that we have in society when we separate how we interact with one another from the creation principle that we have inherent dignity created in the image of God. And so secularists have to come up with different kinds of constructs. We heard it from our vice president-elect this, uh, during this election cycle. It's a common explanation of why should I be kind to you? Why should I care about racism or somebody who looks different than me or acts different than me? And the reason why is this very nebulous idea of capacity. Keller talks about this in his writings that, you know, when you start saying the reason why certain people should have, or that people should have rights of freedom and happiness and the inalienable rights is because they have the capacity to love. They have the capacity to produce. They have the capacity to contribute to the greater good. They have the capacity to love and to think rationally. Therefore, they are valuable and they should be guaranteed certain rights and everybody should be equal before law. Okay? And that sounds really good. But you see, for the New York legislature, a baby in the womb right up to the day of birth does not have the capacity to produce or to contribute to the common good, or to love, or to think rationally. That fetus in the womb does not have these capacities yet. Therefore, it's okay to kill them. But that brings up an interesting conundrum. As somebody whose mother went through a dozen years of severe dementia, what was her capacity? As an older woman, she had lost her capacity to think rationally. She had lost her capacity to distinguish me from people from throughout her life. She had lost the capacity to love me as her son. She had lost the capacity to contribute to the greater good. So why don't we just put her out of her misery? Or how about the mentally handicapped? See, we could go on down the list of people who do not have the capacity, the unborn, the elderly, the mentally handicapped. Church, we've seen the answer to this in history before. They were called Nazis. And all of the people who did not fit the concept of what is their capacity as the master race was inferior, therefore it was justifiable to enact mass genocide against the Jew and the gypsy and the communist and the homosexual. And you just go down the list of people who did not have the capacity to contribute to the society as it was defined by the ruling powers. And now we have genocides. So we're in a dangerous place in our nation because we have gotten disconnected 
from this understanding that our rights and our freedoms come about because we are created in the image of God. You are inherently invested with dignity, regardless of your sex or the color of your skin or your capacity. I wish I could spend some time on the garden part. He creates us in his image. He puts us in this wonderful garden. I've got to skip all that because everything I just said wasn't really planned to go into that kind of depth, and we've got to move on. There's some neat things about the garden, and we'll get to that one of these days, but for now we need to focus on humanity's commission that we receive from God as he puts us in this garden by Eden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Now underline this phrase, to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. In Genesis chapter 1, we we see this also. God blessed the male and the female, the man and the woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds, every living thing. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I've given every given green plant for food, and it was so. You know, young people will oftentimes come to me and say, Jerry, I need help understanding what is God's will for my life? And depending upon the mood I'm in, (laughs) I will often pull from Genesis 1, and I will look them in the eyes, and I will say, God's will for your life, it's very clear. It is to marry, have children, and get a job, not necessarily in that order, okay? And this comes right back to the creation account, right? Genesis 1 is clear. We're to marry, we're to have children. We are to steward the earth through our work and the work of establishing civilization across the world and the cosmos. This is God's will for us, right? To establish civilization. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by working. You do that by marrying and having children and spreading the image of God across this world. Now, people have abused these verses. People have abused the idea of subduing and having dominion over the earth. Let's make it clear, this earth is not ours to do with as we please. Through the centuries, people have come to this passage and they've promulgated this functional utilitarian view of the earth that is just here for our pleasure to to use as we need to use, and they forget their place within creation. We are not created this way. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it belongs to Him, right? We're first and foremost to understand ourselves as stewards of the earth. We're caretakers of God's garden. And and the blessing is, as caretakers and stewards, God has given us the privilege of taking resources from his creation in order to feed ourselves and to make sure that we are able to exist. But he doesn't give us all an open mandate to rape and pillage and use the resources of this earth simply to fulfill all of the lust and desires that we may have or that a corporation may have. Christians are called to be conservationists. 
to see the earth as God's creation. And we don't worship creation, but we care for creation. And through the care of our creation, we are worshiping the creator of this creation. We steward God's creation through work. We are designed to work, to be employed and to to use our gifts and our abilities to bring about order in the chaos of this world, to make civilizations and to make them places where the dignity of every human being can be honored. We're designed to work and to fill the earth with his image through marriage. We see this affirmed in chapter two, right? At the end of chapter two, God hallows and sanctifies the first marriage. He brings Eve and Adam together and he conducts that first wedding ceremony. The Beckwiths got a great surprise this week. Laney got engaged. You're planning yet another wedding. He has three daughters, pray for him. Right? One down, the second one on the way, a third to go. But isn't it a beautiful thing that what God does here in the garden? He sanctifies marriage and the home. He brings male and female together so that they can live as one, become one flesh, and begin to enjoy the depth of relationship that God has enjoyed for all of eternity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the points of marriage is just to simply give us a taste of the unity and and the love that exists within the Godhead for all of eternity. Genesis 2, though it adds a wrinkle to this commission in Genesis 1. I told you to underline the phrase, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is a wrinkle, to work it and keep it. It's different than chapter one. Yes, we're designed to work and steward the earth and we're to have, uh, live in deep relationships with one another. We're to fill the earth with, with children and to have children. But humanity is also commissioned to guard the garden to protect the garden. We're we're, we're commissioned to see ourselves as priests and servants of God who who are commissioned to protect something that is incredibly precious. The phrase, work it and keep it. This is a priestly phrase. You find it in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's used in conjunction with the Levites who guard the entrances to the tabernacle and to the temple protecting its sanctity and its holiness. And so the parents, these original parents put into the garden are given a commission, work the garden, have children, and guard the garden because it is a sacred, holy place. See, already we're having some foreshadowing, aren't we? Because as we're going to see next week in chapter 3, Adam doesn't guard the garden and tragedy ensues. So we have this context of creation, right, in the garden. And we see the importance there of being created in the image of God. And now we have a commission that God gives us. Let's close out this morning by seeing God's covenant with humanity in this passage. In verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
One of the purposes of this annual theme and series is discipleship of of the people of God. We sometimes have to circle back and spend time laying, making sure that the foundations are in place for us to be able to grow into the men and women of God that he intends for us to be. And so this morning, this is in this series of messages, really for the whole year, is designed around this, and we see a good example of it in this passage right here. As we are going to study through the Old Testament this year, the concept of a covenant, which is so widespread through the ancient Near East, is critical for us to understand if we are going to be able to read and interpret and apply the scriptures in the right way. If we don't understand this concept of covenant, we will not understand the scriptures because the covenant and the idea of covenant creates a framework from Genesis chapter one all the way to the end of the Bible. So what is a covenant? A covenant is a sealed binding relationship between two parties. And in the ancient Near East, it took on a particular form, and we see this form reflected throughout the scriptures. And I'm going to highlight this, especially as we get to Noah and Abraham and and folks like this. In the the ancient world, what would happen is this. A, a, A guy would come along, a king, and he would conquer a people, or maybe people said, hey, we want to be a part of your kingdom. And so a treaty was established, a covenant was established. And in that treaty, there was a certain form. They're called suzerain treaties, right? The the king would identify himself. And he would spend time not only identifying himself, but telling them why he was such a good king to them, how he had been good to them and blessed them and and everything else. And then they would come to this portion called, it were stipulations. The king has been good. You're now my vassals. Here's what I expect from you. Do this, don't do that, right? Here's the the terms of the treaties. And then on the heels of that would be a section that we would call blessings and cursings. If you obey, life is good. Here's what you can expect. If you disobey, here comes the pain, right? And and that's what you have here in Genesis. And and, and in the old, you gotta understand this. You know, in that ancient world, when a a people would go off the trail, off off the tracks, He would send a royal ambassador to them and say, hey, we have a treaty. Here's the stipulations. You're not abiding by them. If you don't course correct, the pain is coming. Those royal ambassadors would try to salvage the relationship. In the Bible, those royal ambassadors are called prophets. And the prophets are simply royal ambassadors from King Jehovah coming to his people who he has a covenant with saying, you're not abiding by the stipulations of the covenant. And this is what's going to happen if you don't repent and make things right. That's the structure of the Old Testament and much of the scriptures. We see this, right? To be clear, the word covenant doesn't appear in these opening chapters. It doesn't make its first appearance until Genesis 6 with Noah. But all the elements of a covenant are here, and certainly the scriptures understand that God has established a covenant with Adam and through Adam with all of humanity here in the garden. You see this later in the Old Testament in Hosea. God is talking to the Israelites, and he says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant where they dealt, dealt faithlessly with me. In Romans chapter 5, the whole point that Paul is making is that in Adam, we all find our representative head. And when he sinned, we sinned because he broke 
the covenant. So in the garden, we see our first covenant. It's often referred to as the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. And the the elements are there. In chapter one, he identifies himself. He's Elohim, the creator of the universe. And then he talks about all the good things that he's provided for us, the, the plants, the animals, the food that we need. All of our sustenance is here. And he's blessed us with his image. He's given them a tree of life, which when they eat from that tree of life, it will keep them forever healthy and young so that death does not come upon them. And he gives them everything that they need, including dignity and a, and a purpose and significance. And he only gives them one stipulation. What is the stipulation? Do not eat from the tree of the of knowledge of good and evil. And the blessings or the curses, if you do not eat and you obey me, you will live and have life. If you disobey, you will die. Obey and live, disobey, die. Why did he give them this stipulation? Well, I only have 30 seconds, so that's gonna be next week, okay? <laughs> Instead, we need to ask a more important question. So what? In fact, why does God replay the creation of humanity in chapter two when he's really given us the, everything, you know, the basics in chapter one, we get it. So why does he go back into it in chapter two? I wanna give you a, maybe a secondary application and a primary application this morning. The secondary application is, I think, most directly appropriate for everyone who's a parent. Past, present, future, Here you are, it's real simple. Guard your garden. Your your family's your garden. Guard and tend your garden. I I have a pastor friend and he was in our presbytery for a long time, Mark Bates at University Presbyterian and now he's out in, in Colorado and he gives a great example of what it looks like to guard your garden as a parent. He said, you know, when they moved out to Colorado, they had to find new schools and they, they found some public schools in their community that had a great reputation. And, you know, and so they enrolled their children in that public school. And, and this is everything that parents always have to do. We have to always look at where, how do we educate our children and we'll land all over the place. And in this context, they put them in a public school. But every year in the summer before the upcoming year, he would get the textbooks that their children were gonna have in the upcoming year, and he would spend the summer reading through and getting familiar with the textbooks that his children were going to have. Why? Because he knew that as good as that school was, his children were gonna be introduced to philosophies and ideas, a worldview that was not a Christian worldview. And so part of his calling as a parent was to guard his children and their hearts and their minds and to ensure that they were uh, inculcated with the correct worldview as a child of God's covenant. See, parents, your children, your, your garden's under attack. If you haven't figured that out, you're sleeping through what's happening in our world. And our first calling is to guard our garden, to protect our families, 
to put a worldview into our children so that they will understand why they should defend the unborn, why they should be merciful to those who are in poverty and in need, why they should want to see justice occur in our society so that discrimination and bigotry and all of these things are taken out of our society. If you leave this up to the secular world, your children are going to be indoctrinated in a philosophy that does not carry that out. They're going to be given a worldview that leads them down the wrong path. Not only will they not have a a rational, scriptural, biblical understanding of why we should love and be merciful and gracious, they won't even understand what it means to be male and female anymore. If you do not see that our, our culture is attacking your garden, you're blind. And just as Satan attacked that garden, as we'll see next week, you're being attacked now. Step up, men, dads. Step up. Lead your family. Protect your garden. Tend it. Moms. I was talking to someone recently, and I loved her answer when she was asked, what do you do? She said, I am a Christian wife and mother who is a teacher. Why was that a great answer? Because she understood that the highest calling that any of us can have Unless God gives us a special dispensation and he puts a special calling upon us to be single and to live life either for the entirety of our life or to season as single people, unless God gives us that special calling to accomplish a special role, our highest calling is to be a Christian spouse and a parent first and foremost. And then we have a job. You understand? Who are you? I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher. No, you're a Christian mom. There is no higher honor than to have children and to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. No higher calling. You can be a mom who teaches, but don't forget, ladies, your highest calling is to be a wife and a mother, to compliment that husband who, according to God, right from the get-go, needs help. (laughs) Right from the get-go, we need help. Tend your garden. Tend your worldview. Because our worldview tells us that you don't have any significance unless the children are left at daycare and yada, 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 and you have all these toys and this and that and everything else. Tend your garden. Guard it. Protect it. Understand the high honor we have to be called for these purposes. I got to stop. I have another application. We'll come back to it next week. Father, thank you. For whatever reason, this was heavy on my heart this morning. I, I pray, Lord, that you will help those who hear it to hear it with the grace, the love that it's intended. As I, I look at these families and Uh, both those who are a family of one and those who are family of eight and everything in between. 
My heart is filled with love for them and concern for them. And just as a shepherd is to guard his flock, they are to guard themselves and their family. God, help us to think like Christians, to reject the noise of this culture and to ground ourselves in the truth of your word. God, I pray for our, our young families especially. My, my boys are, are raised and everything. And our, but our young families are facing things that we never faced. God, would you give them the wisdom and the grace that they need to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that their children leave their home with a solid, sound worldview that is grounded in Scripture that honors Christ. Would you give them that grace? Lord, would you bring people into their lives, other people in our church who can walk with them as small group leaders and volunteers as we pour our life and we guard the garden and we guard the flock from wolves. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us everything that we need to do this through your son, Jesus, who lives in, him, in us. So it's to the, his honor that I pray these things. Amen.